Oh, it's good to be with you this morning, church family. Um, so we've been, we've been talking about this table for a while, um, and we're going to continue talking about that. That's why I'm up here. I don't like being up here. I'd prefer to be down there with you guys, but this, this room for this table, um, it's really important for us to be able to do this. And in particular, we started talking a few weeks ago about uh, Luke 14, where, where there was parable after parable after parable story that Jesus was telling about a feast. And we talked about what it means to have a feast that represents the kingdom of God. And so uh, we're keeping this here. We're going to continue to talk about this, in particular, these three places. Uh, I've been real mindful about what it means to be around a table lately. Um, we went and saw some friends uh, just yesterday. Went and met them up in Waco there in the Dallas area. He was the best man at my wedding. I was the best man at his wedding. Dear friends, you know that you've just shared so much with uh, you have these dear friends. And it's funny because immediately there's hugs and there's talk. And then just immediately we want to find a table to sit at. Let's find a place. And let's sit down and let's talk. Let's, let's find a place with, if you can, chips and queso or something like that. And, and then let's begin to talk. And, and then we did that and we talked and we reminisced and we talked about things that matter. And then we got up and walked around. And then it was before too long where it was like, we need to find a table. Let's sit down. Let's find a table and let's sit where we can talk. And I just think there's just such wisdom in God making sure that we have to nourish ourselves daily, right? I mean, I guess he could have made us to where you have to eat once a week. He could have made it to where it was like your car's oil every 3,000 miles or three months, whatever comes first, that you have to sit down. But in his wisdom, the idea of going every day, a few times, you need to sit and you need to nourish yourself and you need to sit with people if you can. Um, this past week, I also uh, got the privilege to go to a pastor's lunch. There's a group of ministers here in this church, pastors at churches, and they get together once a month. And so I went. And I'll tell you, you know, I'm 53 years old, but you still have that thing that you had in school where it's like, I don't know who I'm going to sit with. You know what I mean? I, I don't, I'm the new kid. And so I don't, I don't know that many people here. And, uh, but the nice thing was that we come into a place and we sit down and while I sat at this table and began to talk, uh, I met some people next to me who were at uh, Grace Covenant Church in Ingram, Presbyterian Church. Their name is Yule. And it was him and his wife. And over some chips and some queso, uh, we began to talk. And we began to share with each other what it means to serve in the kingdom of God and what's happening with their church. And I got to tell him about you. And we got to share that time together. And it's just something that couldn't happen if you bump into each other at Walmart. It just doesn't occur that way. So uh, if we can, before we begin, we're going to move from one last week we talked about the younger son. Today we're going to talk about the other end of the table. We're going to talk about the father who's the host of the table. And uh, this one's my favorite one because we get to talk about the hero of the story. So uh, I'm excited to talk to you about that. But let's, let's pray uh, before we begin and ask God's blessing on our conversation and, uh, and that uh, he opens our ears to the things that he has to say to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you for uh, what it means to belong to your table, to have a place, uh, to know that we can come and we can sit down and we can nourish ourselves at a place where you provide everything that we need to make ourselves whole. Uh, Lord, we're, we're thankful that we didn't earn in any way our seat here, that the table has been set for us, that you did that at great cost, uh, that we get to remain here because we call ourselves sons and daughters, because you call, us your, you call yourself our Father. And so, Lord, we are grateful for that. We're thankful that we're going to get to take bread 
We're going to get to take the cup today. And we're going to remind ourselves that it's you who fills us in every way. God, I thank you for uh, the ministers in this town, for the fact that they get together to share with one another, to pray with one another, uh, to talk about how big your kingdom is, that it goes beyond these walls, that it goes beyond this town, and that uh, it is eternal, and it will withstand the test of time no matter what. I thank you for uh, the Yules that serve at uh, Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Ingram. And I ask that you would bless them. I thank you for sending them to me to, uh, to allow us to share with each other, uh, for me to make new friends and to have people that I know here. We ask blessings on their church and who they're reaching out to, that they would boldly preach the name of Christ. And we ask the same for us. Let us be people who uh, preach the name of Christ understanding the joy and the hope that comes in belonging to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, we started this last week, and if I can, I want to give you just a little bit of a reminder because the setting of this story, The Prodigal Son, and I know there's a lot of you go, oh, The Prodigal Son, I've done this a lot. I'm telling you, this this story is alive. And the more you look into it, And the more you read it, the more you'll find just new and amazing things that come from this. So if I can, if you'll bear with me a little bit, I want to set this up again. Luke 14, the chapter right before this, we talked about these parables of the feast and this table. And when Jesus was talking about that, he was talking to religious people. He was at a Pharisee's house on the Sabbath, so he's basically in church. And he's talking to religious people, and he's telling them, this is what it looks like to be invited to the table. Here's what the host does. Here's what a guest does. Here's how you ought to be. And then the next thing we know is that Luke 15, at the beginning of that chapter, before he starts telling the stories of the coin and the sheep and the prodigal son, is it says, who's there? And it's a unique situation. As a matter of fact, we got that here, verse 1 and verse 2 again. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So what we have is a real unique situation where it didn't always happen. Jesus didn't always get both these groups together. When he's in the temple courts, the sinners and the tax collectors weren't there. When he was at Zacchaeus' house and when he was at Matthew's house, these tax collectors' homes, the Pharisees were not there. You need to know, they did not intermingle. They didn't spend time together. They didn't like each other. Uh, As a matter of fact, one of the things I mentioned last week was that I always had this view that they kind of had this divide in the middle because the Pharisees wouldn't even want to touch somebody who's a sinner or a tax collector. But reading that, I don't think that it was separated this way. It says that the sinners and the tax collectors gathered around, and what that really means is that they drew near to Jesus. And it doesn't say that about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It doesn't say they drew near to him to hear what he has to say. Instead, they stood back. They had a problem. He's welcoming them. He likes that they draw near to him. What's his problem? And I picture Jesus looking out and going, now's the time. Right now, when I've got them right here who have been coming to me, who are maybe without hope, who maybe wonder if there's any place for them in the kingdom of God, and I've got people back here that are complaining about this and they don't get it. Now's the time. So I've got some stories for you. Here's the first one. There was a man who owned some sheep. And there was a hundred of them, and one got lost. And so he left 99 in the field to go find the one. And then when he brought it back, he rejoiced. You understand what I'm saying? There was a lady, and she had some coins, and she lost one of them. 
And so she stopped everything, and she tore the house apart until she found the one. And when she found the one, she brought it back. She stopped and rejoiced. Do you get it? And then there's this third story I want to tell you. And, of course, you got to think, during these first two stories, if you're considered one of the tax collectors and the sinners, you've got to be listening to this and going, is he talking about me? Is it, is it possible that what he's doing is he's talking about there's a way back for us? That there's actually a way back to God from what I've done. There's something that will erase my past and the things that I've done that have broken my heart and that I know have broken the heart of my Heavenly Father. Is there possibly a way back? Is that what he's getting at? Because I get this lost sheep thing, and I get this lost coin thing. Then he turns and he starts telling this story about a man and his son. Now this one, I wonder if the Pharisees looked at this and kind of said, you know, the first one, sheep are stupid, and one can wander off. That makes sense. You don't blame the sheep. Wandered off. They do it all the time. And a coin, it's not the coin's fault that it got lost. The coin just got lost. But this one, this one where he starts talking about a son who basically spat in the face of his father and turned his back, and I'm talking real rebellion. I wonder if the Pharisees are looking at this one and going, yeah, get him. Get them. This is the one. This is the one they'll understand. You start talking about a son who had a father, who had a place, who had a table, who had a feast, and he traded it all in. This is the one where Jesus is going to get them. This is one where he's really going to talk about what they've done. And so I wonder if this is the story where they thought things might change a little bit. And so Jesus began to tell this story. And in particular, what I want us to do today is, like I said, I want us to talk about this. We're considering this the head of the table. This is where the father would sit. And this at the right hand would be the older son. And then the younger son is down here. And we talked last week. The younger son, he decided to leave. And you need to know that when he came and he asked his father and he says, hey, I want my stuff and I want to go. It, the, the whole idea of that is basically to go, my inheritance, I'm ready to trade in. And I, I don't know how we can really understand the depth of how heartbreaking this was for the father. It's basically if you were to come to your, to your father and say, hey, you've got all these wonderful things that are the heritage of our family and it's our name and, and our land that we've lived on forever. And I want to know, what, give me mine so that I can go to the pawn shop and see what I can get for it. Because really what I want to do is I want to see what I can get for it. What's it worth? What can I trade it in for? For me. And so there's this heartbreak of the son going, really, it's not being at this table and having used my father that I want. I really want what I can get out of it. If I could trade it in and go, then I will. So give me what I got. Let me see what I can get for it. And then he leaves. And I want to talk about, in particular, the three reactions of the father. There's heartbreak, there's hope, and then there's the happiness. And they all start with H because that's what ministers do. <laughs> Maybe you'll remember. The heartbreak of a child leaving. I don't know that we can fully grasp that unless you've been through that. But I picture this so much. I know this is a parable, but it's trying to explain to us how humans interact with each other. And, and in this story, we don't know how long the child's gone. But some of you know. Some of you know what it's like to have a child that's gone that you don't know where they are. Maybe you've been through that time. But I imagine in a place like this, every time you look across the table when you sit down to eat, because here's the part about this, that it's a blessing we do it every day, and it's a curse you do it every day if your child's missing, because you look over there and that chair's empty every time. Every time that chair is empty. 
And I've talked to some parents recently who have had some children that were gone. And they said, there was a time where I didn't know. And I've talked to them where some of them are going through it right now. I don't know where he or she is. I don't know if they're alive. I don't know what they're doing, but it's not good. And I don't know what's worse, not knowing and wondering if they're okay or what they're doing, or sometimes knowing and knowing that what they're doing is destroying them. And I don't know what's worse. But I can only imagine the heartbreak that happens every time you sit down and you look and that spot that's supposed to be filled with your child is empty. It's a heartbreaking thing. I had, uh, when I was in Austin, one of the things I did for a long time is I was the local evangelism minister for a church. And I don't know how many times I would get phone calls from parents, and these were the ones that really got to me because I'm a dad with daughters, okay? I would have a call from a father who would say, you don't know me. I live in the Dallas area or the Houston area or I'm from Amarillo or whatever. And, and my daughter is there in school at UT and she's got mixed up in a bad crowd. And she's doing some stuff that I'm afraid is destroying her. And I'm wondering, would you reach out to her? Would you call her and see if you can maybe get her to come to church or that you would maybe see if she's okay? And, and I got to tell you, I, I never knew what to do. Uh, because I'm like, uh, getting a phone call from a 40-year-old man that she doesn't know out of the blue, I don't think it's going to help. Me calling her and going, hey, your dad's worried about you. You don't know me. Do you want to come to church? I don't think that's going to do anything. Sometimes I did. Sometimes I would try, and usually it didn't work out really well. But more than anything, what I remember is a father who is in desperate straits for their child. To go, my child is away, and she's killing herself with what she's doing. She's being destroyed. And she won't listen to me, and I'm wondering if she'll listen to anybody else. And it's just the heartbreak that comes from someone who is away from their home, living a life that's not true. And I think that's got to be the hardest thing with this, is a parent going, my child is out there, and they're living a lie. They're mixed up in some things they think will give them life, and I know that it won't. It's actually taking life from them. It's some things that they think will make them who they really are, and instead, it's them not living into who they actually are. And them thinking that they don't have a father, and that they don't have a place, and that they don't know where they belong. And it's desperate for them to know, you have a home, and you can come back. And that heartbreak is really difficult. And I know some of you have been through it, and I know some of you are going through it right now. And I know that some of us have been the, the child who was missing during that time. And so I think it's really important for us to remember what the heartbreak is in this and how hard it is. And it's part of the story that Jesus is telling us about our Heavenly Father. That's the heartbreak. Then there's hope. And there's a lot of hope with this Father. And you know why I, you know, why I know that there's hope is because he's done some preparation so in the story, one of the things that happens is the son's in a pig pen at the end of kind of his journey. This is the part where it says that when he came to his senses, he looked around. And, you know, you can see what this is. What am I doing? How did I get here? This is awful. What happened to me? I got I to make my way back. And, and while that's going on, I imagine, now I'm extrapolating some things here into a parable, but I got to imagine that maybe there's a conversation that's going on back at home too. Because you have a father who is keeping his eyes on the horizon. I, you know he is because he recognizes him from a long way off. So I don't know how many nights he's looking out over the horizon to look and see if his son's on his way back. You know the other way that I know? 
is because robe, sandal, and ring are all close by. He's got them right there when it comes time. And you know the other reason I know? There's this fatted calf that he's keeping fatted, if that's a word. Right? You know about fatted calf? In Scripture, when it talks about that, it says bring the the calf that's been grain-fed, the grain-fed calf. And so what that is, is there's your normal herd, and then you have one that's a calf that you keep over here, and you feed it extra stuff, good stuff, with an eye going, someday we'll celebrate. And this is what we'll use to celebrate. It's like when you keep the really nice ribeyes in the freezer, right? You're going, hey, there will come a time where we're going to eat these ribeyes, and it'll be great. So you keep this calf And he's ready, and he's ready for a celebration. So I imagine while the son sits in the pigsty having this conversation with himself about hopelessness, because think about it, there's this hopelessness, right, of what has happened to me, and how did I end up here? And I can come back, but this spot will never be mine again. I don't get the spot back. I don't get my place at the table. I don't get to be called son. I've ruined relationship. I've ruined title. I've ruined my place, so I don't get to have that. Maybe what I can do is come back and earn my way back into the servants' quarters. I'll earn my way back into there. So he's having this conversation, devoid of any hope. Meanwhile, I think you have a father having this conversation to go, when he comes back, when he comes back, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be ready. We're going to have the robe, and we're going to have the ring, and we're going to have the sandals, and I'm keeping the, the, the calf fed and I'm going to make sure that he knows. Now, here's the things that maybe start going through a father's head, right? Is what's my mission in this? What really matters? And over time, I think a lot of us change if you've ever been a father or a mother and have a child gone. Because you maybe go from one, you know, I, I lost a kid one time in Target, my oldest daughter. And you know that feeling where you grab them and you want to spank them and hug them at the same time? Right? You been there? Is maybe the father's doing that. And to go, when they come back, the first thing I want to do is go, what were you doing what were you thinking? How could you possibly do this to yourself and, and go, well, maybe there's this lesson that he needs to get. And, you know, well, finally you learned your lesson. But it appears more than anything what you got is a father who goes, my mission is to get him back right there. That's what I want more than anything is to get him right there. All the other things that need to be learned, all the things that need to be healed, all the things that need to be changed, those will happen from this spot. My goal is to get him right here in this spot, back where he belongs in this place. And so I picture the father having these conversations with himself, making sure that he's ready, making sure that he keeps feeding hope and he keeps feeding that calf. Keep feeding that calf. Keep feeding that calf, knowing that someday what's going to happen is we're going to have a feast and we're going to rejoice because my son's back. We'll have that opportunity to eat that fatted calf. That's the hope. And you can tell it's all over the Father. It just is in the way that he reacts. And then finally, there's the happiness. And that's what happens when the son does come back, right? There's this happiness. And and the happiness you can see because there seems to be a hurry about everything. He even says the word. If you look in verse 22, it says, But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Quick. Have you ever seen... Somebody so excited about what they're going to do that they can't help but run, right? Like when I used to take my little girls to the park and there were the swings, when we get out of the car, if you set your little, you know, two, three, four, five, doesn't matter how old, you set them down, they take off, running. 
I can't wait to get to this, right? And, and then you have a father in this case who, by the way, patriarchs, distinguished men who owned land in the first century who were Jewish did not run because you had to hike up your skirt to do it, okay? You had to pull this stuff up and you had to run and you're showing your legs and you don't do that. But it doesn't matter when you want something that bad, when you're that happy. But this idea that in Scripture that he says, hurry, do this, goes to show you the happiness that he had during this time. And you can see, the, the son practiced the conversation. Do you remember? I'm going to come home and I'm going to say, I sinned against you and against heaven. I no longer deserve to be your son. Please let me be one of your He doesn't get through it. The father interrupts him. He didn't get the whole speech out. Because the father's got a mission. Get him back in this spot. So he interrupts him. And he says, quick, sandals, robe, ring, the stuff we've been waiting for. Get it on him. Get it on him now. Now, here's the interesting thing. Son came back from a place where he was in a pigsty. Unclean animal, unclean circumstances. I imagine the son coming back filthy, smelling. Got the whole world on him. Drawn, thin, right? He didn't have anything to eat. He was looking for the food of the pigs. Skinny, the world has done a number on him. And what the father doesn't go is clean him up first. What he does is go, you put it on him now. You take the robe and you put it on him now. You wrap it over the slop and the filth and the mess and the stink. You put it on him right now. You cover up what the world has done to him with what I've purchased for him. This is what I've made. This is what I have. The clothes that I've prepared for him. And you wrap him up in it. You cover him up in it. And then... You put him right back in the place where he's supposed to go. I think of that being something the father said too. Is when he comes back, the first thing I'm going to do is call him son. Because he may be wondering whether or not I still consider him a son. Which means he may be sitting out there wondering whether or not he still has a father. Which is a lie. And I'm not going to let him believe that. That he doesn't have a father. So I call him son. And we put these clothes on him. Quick. Wrap him up. Put him back in the clothes of a son. Put him back in the clothes of my son of a man who has a father, and you put him back in his place, and we reinstate him to where he belongs. This is where you go. This is where you belong. And that robe that he wraps him up in, I want to talk to you for a minute about that, because I've had some fun uh, this week talking about the robe. The, the robe, when you look at the translation of this, is not a normal robe. And wrapping him up in a robe would have meant a lot. I want to go back for a second and remind you. What we're doing is we're talking to Pharisees and we're talking to sinners and tax collectors. The Pharisees, you got to remember, probably had the Torah memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Probably had it all memorized. That's one of the things they would do. All five chapters, all five books memorized. So they know it inside and out. Okay? And then you say, you got Jesus telling the story. There was a son. Turned his back, spit in his father's face. He was gone. And when he came back, his father took a special robe. This is the part about the robe. It's not a normal robe. I've looked through all of the translations. I can't really determine one that would work except to go, it's a special robe. Like when they talked about a robe that they put on Jesus. You remember when the soldiers mocked him, they put a robe on him and they put a crown on his head. It's not that robe. It's a different word. They don't use that that word. In the scripture here, it's the long robe. And it's used in a few other places I'll tell you about in a minute. But the best thing I can do is to go the special robe. 
the father said, put the special robe on my son. Now, you have Pharisees who know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you have a father who takes a son and puts a special robe on him. I promise you, I promise you, they know what that looks like. There's a guy that's a hero of theirs who gave a special robe to one of his sons. Do you know this story? Jacob, who had all of these sons, and he had one son in particular, Joseph, who was kind of his favorite, and he made a special robe, and he put it on his son. And it was one of these things that meant a lot. And so when you have Pharisees that are looking at this and going, okay, so a son who spit in his father's face and who disappeared, and now he's coming back, and the father puts a special robe on him? That sounds like Jacob, who's also known as Israel, who is our people of Israel, and his son Joseph, and he's putting that robe on him. They would have recognized that. They go, you mean he gets a special robe? A son who did this gets the special robe? And it's not just the special robe. I want to tell you that when I went and looked at this, like I said, there's some places where it uses the word robe, and it's not this word. And then there's a place where Jesus tells his disciples, another place where he says, be careful of the Pharisees. They love to have the special robe on for other people to see them. He uses this word. Beware of them. They like to walk around in the long robe, the special robe. So he had even said, the Pharisees like to put this robe on themselves. But what you have is you have the father getting the son and putting the special robe on him. I'm telling you, there's something here they would have gotten. And then there's another place later when you have John the Apostle, and he's in exile, and he's in Revelation. And one of the things that he talks about is that there are some people that are praising God when he sees this vision in heaven. There are some people that are praising God in the kingdom of God, and they've been given these white robes by the Father. And this is the word they use, a special robe. He gave them a special robe. And this is what it says in Revelation 7, 13 through 17. Then one of the elders asked me, these in the white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes. They made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That, some of that scripture that's being quoted there by John is from what we talked about the other day when we first started this from Isaiah, where it said there will be a feast that will be prepared for them. And they will eat of this feast, and he will wipe away every tear, and they will no longer go hungry. These are the promises of God. These are the promises of what it means to dwell in the house of the Lord, to sit at the table of your father. So I'm telling you, when you have in this story that the father gave the son who came back the special robe, you need to understand that's a big deal. It's the robe of significance. It's the robe that makes you stand out. It's the one the father gives to wrap you up. Even no matter how filthy you are, no matter what the world's done to you, no matter how it's beaten you up, he puts this robe on you. And it's a robe of significance. It means you're my son. It means you belong to me. That's what's so neat about this. Is that you have a father who kept all things ready. You remember in Luke 14 when we talked again about the great banquet? Jesus says there was a man and he had a great banquet. 
And so he told his servants, everything is ready. All things are ready. Go and tell people to come to my feast. And then in this story, what you have is a father. And he kept everything ready. The robe, the sandals, the ring, the fatted calf. Everything was ready for him to come back. You don't have to get clean first. Father's going to take care of that. And then he comes. And then there's a party. And that's the other part that I love. So there's a party that's going to come with this. And in every one of these stories, when it's the sheep, when it's the coin, and when it's the son, in every case, the person who is missing something, when they found it, they threw a party and they invited other people. Everybody needs to come throw this party. Everybody needs to come to the party. I'm rejoicing, and this is what's happening. I need everybody to come to this party with me. So the idea that the joy is so big, it can't be contained inside just my house and just with me. I need other people to come here. So there's this huge thing of I need other people to come celebrate with me. I want everybody here. I want us all rejoicing in the same way. I want my joy in what's happening with my child coming back being such an infectious thing that it changes all of you, and you're all filled with joy. Everybody is. When the father eats well, everybody eats well. When the father rejoices, everybody rejoices. When the father celebrates, everybody celebrates. That's one of the things that's so great. And then I had a dear friend ask me just the other day. He said, I've always wondered this question. What happens after the party? It's a good question. What happens after the party? Because when you think about this in a story like this, one of the things that can happen is we can start going, well, I guess they acted like nothing ever happened. And, and what actually occurred is they sat down and the son came back and he took his place and he never made a mistake again and he never messed up. And everything was good. The problem with that is that makes the son the hero of the story. And the son is not the hero of the story. The father's the hero of the story. Because you need to know, after the party, there's still some healing that has to go on. There's some recovery. There's some time together where they're going to have to let some scars heal. There's some times where this son is going to have to remember that he didn't earn his way here but that he deserves his way here. And there's going to be times where he may question, does he still love me the way he used to? Does he still forgive me? Am I still okay to be here? Am I still his son? Because these are the questions we all ask ourselves. And there's going to be times where he makes mistakes. And there's going to be times where maybe he even wanders off again. But the best part of it is, as long as he dwells in this house with his father, you might even say, if he abides with his father, as long as he stays there and he abides with his father, then he will always be able to fall back into the arms of his father the way he did when he originally came. That's the whole point of this. The moral of the story is not that the son is perfect after this. The moral of the story is that the father is always there to catch the son when he comes back. The father's the hero. It's not a story of the son's righteousness after this, but it's one of the, the father's mercy and his forgiveness. That's what the story's about. And the neat thing is knowing that if you're in this house, that you can fall as many times and you can always fall into the arms of your father. I want to I show you something. I, I saw something a while back. It's really neat. It's a video, and it's only a couple of minutes long. But it's about this young lady named Kayla, who's a track star. And I want you to look at this because this reminds me a lot of this story, if you would. A young athlete pushing the limits of a crippling disease, running for as long as she can, and that inspirational moment of triumph in one of her last high school races. Here's ABC's John Donvan. Good job, Kayla! At the end of every high school varsity meet Kayla Montgomery has ever run, she has always come in over the finish line. Oh my gosh! 
in a crumple. You're seeing her literally at a point when she can't feel anything in her legs. Beautiful girl. The key of this paradox being Kayla's determination and a nerve disease called multiple sclerosis. Four years ago, this one-time elite soccer player began to lose feeling in her feet and legs and was told that MS would likely leave her someday unable to move, period. I was mad. I was uh, really mad. But Kayla took that mad and decided that she was going to run while she still could. Although starting out, she was how fast? I was, uh, I was kind of slow. Average. At best. That's Patrick Cromwell, the coach who took her on and watched her get faster and faster. Fast as yet. And who was always there at the finish. And here's why. When Kayla runs, the natural increase in her body temperature temporarily gives the MS the edge again. In the last part of races, Kayla has lost all feeling below her waist. She lacks the control to slow to a stop. And the reason her cries are so urgent is that with water, with cooling, she can feel again. We got it. And then in her last high school race ever, she's in the gold shirt, come on, come on, this come bad on. break. You gotta go now, Kayla! She did get back into it, and she moved up, and then this. 3,200 meter run champion. And for a final time, the finish line and the help. I got you. And by the time of the ceremony, she can feel, well, Everything. John Donvan, ABC News, Washington. A neat story. Isn't that something? I'll tell you what's amazing is that we're immediately drawn to the young lady. And don't get me wrong, what she's doing is amazing. But I'm not drawn to the legs of Kayla. I'm drawn to the arms of the coach. Right? Kayla runs. and Sometimes she wins and sometimes she loses. But one of the things that happens is no matter what she does, whether she falls, she wins, she loses, it's an ugly race, it's a good race. He's there, arms out, and he's going to catch her because she's going to run out. She's going to run out of what she's got. She can't stop. She's going to fall. And what she has is somebody that she trusts to be there no matter what and to go, every time at the end of this, I'm going to be there and I'm going to catch you. That's what this story is. That's what we have. That's who we are. For those of us that have decided that what we want to do is put our faith in Christ, what we're doing more than anything is to go, when I fall, I'm going to fall into his arms. It's Jesus' arms I'm going to fall into. And I'm going to know that I can. Because here's the deal you need to know. The world will tell you, hey, there's lots of arms you can fall into here that will give you comfort, that will take care of you, that will make you feel better, or that will at least mask the pain or something like that. There's not. There's one set of arms that won't let you down, that no matter what will heal you, and no matter what will always be there. That's this story, and that's why the father is the hero of the story. And it's neat to look at it and go, isn't that great that for people like that, who make a huge mistake, that the father's there to catch Let me tell you, we are people like that. That's who we are. There is no robe, ring, and sandals without the thorns, the nails, and the cross. That's why we get to fall into the arms of our Father. And that's why it's great to know I belong at this table when I've given myself over to Christ. And when I fall, I just fall right into the arms of the one who's right there. And we want you to know more than anything, if you haven't decided yet whose arms you want to fall into this world, let me tell you, the rest of them are going to let you fall. Eventually, they're going to let you fall flat on your face. There's nobody that loves you like this. 
There's nobody that can make you whole. There's nobody that can make you full. There's nobody that can complete you like this father does. We actually get an opportunity here in a minute where we're going to see somebody make their decision that I'm going to fall into the arms of my father for the rest of my life. We're going to have a baptism here in just a minute. So we get to do this, and we get to celebrate, and we get to remember that when it says the angels in heaven rejoice, and the father rejoices, and the father serves fatty calf, we're all about to eat well, okay? Because we get to be here, and we get to be part of this. And we want you to know, if you haven't decided this yet, we would love to appoint you to the Father's house and your place at it because there's a place for you here. And he's been looking at that chair that belongs to you and has been breaking his heart and you're not in it because he wants you to have it because this is the place where you belong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word again. We thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you um, that we have a place at your table and it's not anything that we've earned and we haven't done anything to make it. We didn't set it ourselves, but instead you made it for us and you put it here and you've been waiting for us. And it's not that you wait passively, you actually come and look for us. And so Lord, we ask that we remember what a huge deal it is for us to belong to this, uh, belong at this table. That you've forgiven us, that there was great cost for us to have the robe put around us, to have the ring on our finger and the sandals on our feet for us to be at this table. It came at the, the price of your son and the shame that he endured and the pain that he endured to make sure that we could be here. And so, Lord, we thank you. Uh, we rejoice in this. We rejoice in our sister who is about to take these steps to fall into your arms and continue to fall into your arms for the rest of her life. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.